The Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast is made possible in part by a generous gift from Set Apart to Serve, the church work recruitment initiative of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Many church workers always knew they wanted to serve in Christ's church, but many pastors, teachers, and other full-time church workers left careers to pursue this life of service. If you or a friend have been praying and thinking about a second career as a church worker, the Set Apart to Serve team wants to help. Visit kfuo.org SAS to learn more. Hey ladies, so this was supposed to be one episode and we ended up recording for so long that this episode is now two episodes. So this will be part one of our conversation on modesty and we'll drop the second part of this conversation in our next episode. Enjoy. listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. And I'm Rachel. Today, we are, mm, this isn't a new segment, it's a new version of an old segment. So Brie had her Brie's Big Questions, otherwise known as BBQ episodes. And these were fantastic episodes that she'd bring in a question and kind of mic drop it, and then we'd all talk about it. And these were segments that we figured We need to keep these going because it is really important for us to be talking about these big questions and talk through issues that maybe we don't get to talk about anywhere else, but are things that are really good for us to sit with and think about. And so BBQ is now RBQ (laughs) as Rachel's big question, at least for this one. For this one. We might have an EBQ and an SBQ. It's just big questions that somebody (laughs) is willing to... Get out there. And let me tell you, I mean, Brie, of course, was famous for her big questions like, are dog Mm. moms real moms or should Christians celebrate Halloween? (laughs) And having now prepared my first big question episode, I now understand why she got hives beforehand, metaphorically speaking, and also stayed off Facebook for about a week afterwards. Because when you start these conversations, it can be really nerve wracking, like we just talked about. Was it last week when we talked about your going to school and how we need to have these confrontational conversations sometimes about things that matter, grace and truth over time? Well, yes, let's talk about stuff. So our question, our big question for today is one that I have to ask every single day of my life. What should I wear? Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah, we've been we've been dodging this one for four years now. Mm, yeah. Here we have modest dress for Christian women. Yeah. But I I do think it's probably time to quit running and hiding. <laughs> it's this question of what should people wear or what should women wear or what should Christian women wear is one that can be really uncomfortable to talk about because we realize that It is a very often contextualized question, and we'll talk about that some in this episode, that Mm -hmm. there isn't one standard or principle that fits for all people in all situations in all time around the world. And we really want those black and whites, Mm -hmm. but they're not really there. So 
I was inspired partly by a conversation that happened in the Lutheran Ladies Facebook Lounge recently, mm. where a woman who had previously worn a lot of very sounded like kind of skimpy clothes before she became a Christian had come to faith, was attending church, and really wanted to take it up a notch in terms of her fashion and move beyond what she had previously worn, which is, I think, a work of the Holy Spirit in us when we're mm -hmm. convicted. Okay, maybe I won't wear this particular item again. And her question was, and she got some really insightful, though not unanimous feedback, do I pass these clothing items on to Goodwill where somebody else might be tempted to make remake my own questionable fashion choices or do I simply put them in the garbage? Which is a really fascinating question. Mm. So I really appreciated that conversation. I didn't myself chime in, but I read a lot of comments and thought through some things. But it, it made me realize that this is something that for Lutheran women is going to keep coming up again and again and again as we try to navigate the world in which we're in. The question is, I think it's worth pointing out at the beginning, uniquely a human one, at least in the realm of creation, a human and a heavenly one. I did some fun Wikipedia rabbit trail hunting yes. for this episode and just got into some of those articles that, that just seem so straightforward, like reading the Wikipedia article on clothing. Oh, <laughs> or the history of clothing and textiles. There's oh. really, really some interesting stuff in there. So in this Wikipedia article on clothing, it points out the wearing of clothing is mostly restricted to human beings and is a feature of all human societies. I think when they say mostly restricted, what they mean is some people put clothes on their dogs. But ah. I do not, to my knowledge, know of any animals that dress themselves the way we do. Mm. It goes on to say the amount and type of clothing worn depends on gender, body type, social factors, and geographic considerations. And then it goes on to talk about the reasons people wear clothing. To stay warm, to protect yourself from briars and brambles. But it also admits that clothing has to do with shame and modesty. I'll read the snippet. Wearing clothes is a variable social norm. It may connote modesty. Being deprived of clothing in front of others may be embarrassing. In many parts of the world, not wearing clothes in public so that genitals, breasts, or buttocks are visible could be considered indecent exposure. Frequently, coverage is most frequently encountered, minimum found cross-culturally and regardless of climate, implying social convention as the basis of customs. So people tend to cover their private parts regardless of where they live and how hot and humid it may be. Hmm. Okay. Yes. So Wikipedia tells us all this, but it doesn't say why. It can't say why it is that human beings wear clothes and animals don't, or that nearly all human cultures throughout all of recorded human history have worn clothing to cover themselves, at least their private areas, and often the entire body. And this is regardless of whether you live in the steppes of Russia or the jungles of Indonesia, that that doesn't seem to play a factor on whether you're wearing clothes or not. Mm -hmm. So as Christians, of course, we know that shame and modesty related to clothing are closely tied up with the fall into sin. So Genesis 2, we read that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed before the fall. And then in Genesis 3, the con after they eat the fruit, fall into sin, it says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So this sin, shame, and nakedness are all sort of tied up together here. Mm -hmm. But then there's this wonderful follow-up in verse 21. It says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So we see even back in Genesis that clothing has theological, and I, I hesitate to use this word, but I want to say almost sacramental significance. Hmm. That in putting clothes on us, God covers over the shame of our sin. And it is significant to me that although Adam and Eve kind of try to cover themselves, in Genesis, <laughs> in Genesis it's God that does the covering. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that theme we see carried throughout the old book, the, the prophetic books of the Old Testament. He, God often uses this language. We all know the verse in Isaiah chapter 61, says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. I just love that, that image, that robe of righteousness that he talks about giving to his people. And then he compares his relationship with the people of Israel, specifically in Ezekiel chapter 16, talks about, well, I'll just read it. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I just think that's gorgeous. Hmm. But we see this sort of set up in the, from the earliest chapters of the Bible, this theme, this set of parallel connections. Nakedness equals shame. Clothing equals honor. I guess mm -hmm. you could say, God's providence, God's covering up our shame. So we see also in some of the stories of the Old Testament, if you remember in, in Genesis after the flood, when Noah gets drunk and <laughs> lies naked in his tent, that it is seen as very shameful that Ham, his son, goes in and just looks at him and laughs at him, whereas his other sons put a blanket on their shoulders, mm -hmm. walk in backwards and cover him up without looking at him. Mm-hmm. Then again, in 1 Samuel, when Absalom's sister Tamar is violated by her half-brother, the first thing she does is tear her long robe as a sign of grief and shame for what has happened to her. It says that she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. Hmm. So we see this throughout the Old Testament, this sort of frequent language about the covering up of nakedness. And yet, this is not, this idea of modesty, not exclusively Judeo-Christian. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. No. We. 
I, I mean, God invented it. <laughs> well, yes. But we don't have an exclusive claim to it. If you do, again, here's my Wikipedia article on the history of clothing and textiles. <laughs> so in ancient Mesopotamia, wealthy men were naked on their chest, but they wore short skirts known as kaunakes, while women wore long dresses to their ankles. The king wore a tunic and a coat that reached to his knees with a belt in the middle. Ancient, in ancient Greece, typical garments were the piplos, a loose robe worn by women, the klamis, a cloak worn by men, and the chiton, a tunic worn by both men and women. Men's chitons hung to their knees, whereas women's fell to their ankles. Hmm. And a long cloak called a himatsion was worn over the piplos or the klamis. So, all right, the Greeks, even though they didn't have the Torah, <laughs> they're still covering up. In China, in the Shang Dynasty, Han Chinese clothing consisted of a narrow cuffed knee-length tunic tied with a sash and a narrow ankle-length skirt worn with a length of fabric that reached the knees. We also see evidence of fairly extensive clothing in ancient Egypt. I'm sure you've all seen hieroglyphic pictures of people wearing clothing there. In Iron Age Europe, in Japan, in Thailand, the Philippines, South America, all of these early cultures embraced the use of textiles and animal skins to cover up the human body. Mm -hmm. Also worth pointing out that, as already mentioned, in nearly all of these cultures, well, in all, just about all of the cultures, women's clothing and men's clothing was different. Mm -hmm. And women's clothing covered more of the human body than men's clothing did. Interesting. Interesting. Yes, very interesting. <laughs> Two examples of this that I can mention. One is when I was a child, we lived in Papua New Guinea for several years. And I remember the traditional, I mean, nowadays people wear, you know, t-shirts <laughs> like yeah. the rest of the world. But, you know, when you see people dress up in their traditional attire, men and women's clothing is different. Both are usually topless, but you would never see a woman not covered between her waist and her knees, mm. that there was modesty there. And men and women wore different clothing, at least in the, in the community that we were most closely associated with, where the men wear a sort of loincloth with leaves in the back, whereas the women would wear a grass skirt mm. that pretty much covered, well, and when we were living there, it was a lap lap and merry blouse. So pretty full coverage from shoulders to ankles. The other thing that I find really fascinating is this Artistic tradition in ancient Greece of the chorus sculpture, chorus, chorus, I don't know, 7th century to 5th century BC. So this is a while ago. And this was when the Greeks were really starting to do what they did a lot of, which was idealize and even sort of kind of worship the human body. Mm. So they were making statues of this idealized human body. And the male statue was the chorus and completely naked, top to bottom. Yep. The women's. Kore sculptures, corresponding Kore sculptures, the idealized woman body, woman's body, completely dressed in draping fabric from shoulders to ankles. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. So this pattern seems to sort of have continued throughout history. If you look at the history of women's fashions in the Western world, a lot has changed between ancient Mesopotamia and, say, the beginning of the 20th century. But a lot also stayed remarkably consistent. And to give you an idea here, I'm going to read a list of historical figures. And I want you to imagine them in your heads. Okay? 
Imagine what they what you what they look like, what you can reasonably assume they were wearing. The matriarch Sarah, Helen of Troy, Cleopatra, the Virgin Mary, Empress Theodora, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Katharina Luther, Queen Elizabeth I, Anna Magdalena Bach, Martha Washington, Queen Victoria, Emily Walther, Mother Teresa. So what do you see as the differences in your imagined images of these women? And in what areas are they the same? I see a whole lot of like drapey long fabric dresses in <laughs> my head. <laughs> in like different varieties. Yeah. And not all of them are what I would consider modest. I mean, Cleopatra mm. wasn't exactly trying to leave anything to the imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, but, what 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 is yeah. what are your observations? No, so similar, definitely dresses are what I think of, dresses or skirts, robes, that sort of thing. So I I do observe that fa- fairly early on you enter basically the the western world and stay there. And mm, so yeah. this is my yeah. this is my area of expertise, understanding yeah. that <laughs> For example, Indian or Chinese women. And yet I could Mother Teresa's Indian. <laughs> yeah. But yes, this is this is where I have the most mm-hmm. knowledge and also the most evidence at my disposal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've got this mix of saints and sinners, chaste, mm-hmm. not so chaste women, but we have this remarkable sort of consistency. Obviously, Cleopatra and Mother Teresa probably wouldn't be swapping wardrobes. And so that's another thing worth pointing out that throughout history, whatever religion you're talking about, well, at least the the big five that we have currently today, generally, the more religious a woman is, the less she's likely to reveal with her clothing. Ah, yeah. That seems to be a, obviously, there's there's a big difference between Cleopatra and the Virgin Mary in mm. terms of how we imagine their clothing choices. Yeah. So it's it's a problem because then we enter the 20th century and again I'm Aaron as you point out I'm sort of limited at this point to the western world. However, as the western world has currently spread its fashion around the world, then yeah. in Papua New Guinea they're wearing t-shirts and not grass skirts anymore. I think it is still relevant. So if you look at pretty much every area of fashion in the 20th century, skirts started at the ankles and ended at mini skirts. Mm -hmm. That we went from pantaloons under our skirts to bloomers to trousers to shorts to hot pants. (laughs) We went from corsets and petticoats to bras and undies, and then we burned the bras. Mm. Hats were a thing. They are now not a thing. Long hair got bobbed and then pixied. Victorian bathing outfits gave way to swimsuits and then to itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikinis. Mm. And even if you look at the itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini, it looks pretty modest by today's standards. Yeah. Like, isn't that crazy? Yeah. So, and I'm not, I'm not trying to pass judgment or offer prescriptions. A lot of people will hear that and that's okay. That's okay. I'm simply trying to come to grips with what has been a remarkable amount of fashion upheaval 
for one century and yeah. explain why we are all feeling and living in this tension over what we wear as Christian women. I get I get your point. I see where you're coming from. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> because I, we're I, all aware of this history without having to be told it. Hmm. We know that things were consistently one way for a long time and that they are not that way for us now. Mm -hmm. And it creates this dissonance in our brains that is at the root of this big question. Yeah. So I will ask you both, because I want to hear your stories. Have you felt this tension in your own life? And do you have a story to tell when it comes to your own relationship with fashion and Christian modesty? Because I know you do. So one, one experience that I remember growing up, I was in high school as as you are when you usually start wrestling with this sort of <laughs> yes. Topic. High school is a prime time for it. Yep. And I had selected an outfit and we lived right next door to church, literally right next door. And so we we didn't all travel to church together because it was just, you know, walking walking next door. So when I walked into church, my mom was already there and I had selected a skirt that she was like, no, you will go home and change. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? It's fine. Anyway, she was adamant. And so I I went home and changed. And honestly, I'll tell you, I don't really remember the like a follow-up resolution. There probably was. That part does not stick with me. What sticks with me is that my mom drew a hard line on it and was like, no, that is unacceptable, especially for this context. Mm. And that therefore that there was there was a nuance to what I was wearing that I had not planned on. Because hmm. it wasn't, I mean, she knew I owned the skirt. It's not like she was like, no, that you can't own that skirt. It was how I had chosen to wear it in that, in that time. And anyway, for, for all of that, that's, she was like, no, that's not appropriate. You're going to go home and change. And because we were right next door, it wasn't like, I was like, okay, right. <laughs> home and change my outfit and come back. And anyway, so I, I remember, I remember that experience and I wish that I remember more of the, the follow-up because I'm sure that there was, there was some additional conversation on, on why is this acceptable? I do recall also another similar, probably during the same time frame, high school age, pushing back again on what my mom felt was appropriate versus what I was wanting to do and pushing back on on with, but I've seen the pictures of <laughs> 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 the photo albums because my mom and her sisters grew up in the 60s, mm -hmm. age of the micro mini. And oh, I, yes. Like, the, at the my mom's wedding, her her sisters were bridesmaids. They had long dresses. That was that was what they wore, but that was also the style. It was now the 70s uh, for that. But her younger sisters 
wardresses that were actually still in the family. But at that time, apparently totally acceptable to have shockingly short skirts. Like, no, I'm like, wow, that's so short. <laughs> also, like, so these are like norms. Norms change over yeah. time. And you you raise that as well. Like here we are in the 20, 21st century and the 20th century, there was such a dramatic shift of the norms in such a short time that I think that's partly what everyone is still navigating of what is when you are trying to consider modesty. Honestly, now I'm... We'll we'll give Sarah a chance to talk in a moment. But where I go from all of that is there's modesty, and then usually what ends up I there's modesty, and I don't know if it's it's necessarily wrong, but to to choose to focus on modesty as what you're wanting, but sometimes I think that that it's not necessarily modesty and that's so vague as to what modesty is. Mm. And what you're really trying to say with that's not modest is that's provocative. Ah, yes. And, and it's not really, it's really hard to say what is modest, but we don't like to actually use the words sexually provocative. And so (laughs) instead we're like, that's not modest. (laughs) And it what what seems to be typically at issue with the topic of modesty is sexual provocativeness. That's, and that yeah. changes also with yeah. what is considered what's considered sexually provocative and how do you navigate that? And that's I think that's part of the tricky aspect of it because yeah. And yet there's yeah. an intuitiveness to that. I'm glad you actually said that out loud. There's an intuition (laughs) that we don't need that much help sorting out. If I were to show you two pictures and say, which one is sexually provocative? Mm -hmm. We all pretty much know without Mm -hmm. being told. Yeah. And it may be very different in different times. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter has a a Dover coloring book of historic Renaissance and Reformation fashions. It's really Ooh. fun. And there's only <laughs> one so one picture that has women having completely loose unbound hair and wearing pantaloons. And that would be the the Venetian courtesans. Mm. Mm-hmm. So for that, I mean, people in that time would have been able to look at that picture, which I mean, they're still pretty covered up by our mod- our modesty standards and just say, oh, that's provocative. Yep. Yeah. Well, in a lot of this, I just have to say as a cyclist. Oh, <laughs> yeah. in the 1990s, changed a lot of women's fashion and people bicycles. were not having it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for mentioning mm-hmm. that out loud. Bicycles were hugely impactful yeah. on women's mm-hmm. fashion choices. Yep. Yeah. You had to have shorter skirts and or pantaloons, which like, oh, no, you're putting fabric between your legs. What's going to happen to you? Like. <laughs> <laughs> The first like sneakers happened at that Keds. Uh-huh. Keds were the first sneakers for women. And that was partially like around that time mm-hmm. of like, oh, no, women have this mobility. So they have to change their fashion. And now you you're can't being really ride a bike in a corset. No. Yeah. So like oh, that changed a lot of stuff. And it was it was a weird, a weird time. 
Mm-hmm. And I think this gets really tricky in our more modern conversations about like victim blaming mm-hmm. and like that happened to her because she's wearing something that's provocative. But then we're all like, well, is it actually provocative? And that's not actually her fault. But then like it's this weird. Oh, yeah. Like this gets into that conversation of like what is modest? What is provocative? Is that actually on the person who's wearing the clothing to not be attracting attention? Like I've got a whole list of pitfalls that we'll be going over in a little while. Okay, then I'll stop talking about two items. And now is a lot longer than two (laughs) items because I kept this was the part I kept tinkering with over and over again. I'm like, oh, no, we got to talk about that, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so interesting that talking about like. The stuff that we cover our bodies with just has all of these other implications mm-hmm. in culture. And like you guys have been saying, they're all, not all, a lot of it is contextually mm-hmm. relevant. Like what's modest for me as a modern American woman in St. Louis is not going to be the same modesty standard as somebody that lives in the Middle East. Like there's mm-hmm. just, it is totally different depending on where you are and what your context is. So anyway, oh, my own story. Man, let's see. <laughs> also, things were weird when I was a teenager. I think that's probably pretty standard. My mom had my mom and I have very different fashion standards. And so that's just part of it. We're just we just we're kind of on the opposite spectrums. And that's fine. It was just weird when I when I was a teenager. Also, I was a teenager in the early 2000s when fashion was just terrible. I mean, it was like <laughs> low rise <laughs> jeans that weren't ugh. you coming of age in the era of the juicy sweatpants? Yes. <laughs> okay. So my softball team in high school, we had our, the thing was to have your last name written on your butt. Mm-hmm. And my mom, I was the only girl that didn't do it because my mom was like, you are not putting your last name on your butt. Like that's weird. And I was actually, I was okay with that because I was like, I don't know. Thanks, mom. Yeah. Like I had an out because I didn't, didn't, like that was the thing you had, you had words written on your butt. Like who thought that was a good idea? That's so dumb. Mm -hmm. But like everything was super low rise, which for my body just doesn't, it's not flattering on me or maybe a lot of people. Like I, I kind of hated the stuff I had to wear, but like what else were you going to wear when that was the only thing you could buy? But anyway, it was like low rise, really tight jeans, crop tops tank tops that showed a lot of cleavage, like all of this stuff that was just not very useful uh, for what was considered modest in my family. So there was just, it was, it was just really hard to know what to wear as a teenager. Also, when I just, I was really comfortable in like jeans and a sweatshirt, but I also like wanted to wear stuff that looked really cute and like showed off my body because I was a teenager, which now I think was just like, why was I doing that? No, thank you. But so there was, there was a lot of, a lot of tension there. I did have dress codes for every school, anything. And those were all very strict about very modest standards. So like most of my clothing was dress code appropriate anyway. So I didn't really own anything that was actually that bad. I did have to sew. I don't know that I had to for school or had to for my family. But I (laughs) sewed. I had strapless dresses for Mm. dances. Mm-hmm. And I sewed ribbons on them to cover my bra straps because one of oh. the things was not showing any underwear anywhere. That's like, really clever. Yeah. I'm going to remember so, that. And well, and you don't even have to sew them. I put like Velcro <sighs> inside the dress and Velcro on the ribbon. So if I had a strapless bra on, I could just like take the strap off. It was a whole thing. But I mean, I did that so I could be modest, quote unquote, and not show my bra straps because it's mm. it's just a thing to not show any kind of underwear signs Mm -hmm. of underwear and I still kind of follow that today but so I had 
dress code rules to follow. So I didn't really have to consider what I was wearing to school because I, I'm a rule follower. So I just followed the dress code rules. Not a big deal. I also wore a lot of my brother's hand-me-down clothing. So I ended up with like Boy Scout pants and polo shirts and things to wear as a teenager, which was kind of weird. But so I didn't really own a lot of clothing that I didn't, that wasn't modest. The hard part was more so in for like church, Mm. knowing what was appropriate for church, because that was a lot of times clothing that I wasn't wearing to school. So I did have to make decisions about that. And generally, like the rule was like, if you're going up to communion, is this going to be awkward for the pastor or awkward (laughs) for the congregation? I'm so glad you had that rule. That's a good rule. Yeah. So like if you're kneeling at the communion rail and pastor can see stuff that he shouldn't be seeing, not appropriate to wear. If you bow after communion and the congregation can see stuff that the congregation shouldn't be seeing, also not appropriate. Like those were two very hard and fast rules. And I still have those rules for myself now. But I think that's kind of where the lines were. And I don't I don't remember really having issues with that, those kinds of things. It was more so like is the clothing too form fitting on me? That was where mm. that was where it was difficult. Like the too loose or too tight kind of line was a little fuzzy mm. when I was growing up. So that was probably the hardest part. But yeah, we all agree that clothing is a good thing. We don't want to walk around naked. No, but it seems like there is a time in most women's life when they are anxious to see how much they can show without showing. Yeah, that seems to be a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. Except for me. <laughs> Tell us your experience. We right? love you, Rachel. I mean, I already mentioned that I spent several years in Papua New Guinea where it was very normal to see naked children running around mm. and see, I mean, women didn't really wear bras. And traditionally, they I mean, wearing shirts wasn't all that recent a phenomenon for them. And so that was very normal for me. So that to this day, it doesn't really strike me in the same way that it might somebody who wasn't exposed to that in an early Mm. age. Never had any trouble with naked kids. But then on the other side, well, when we got back to the States, then I spent my childhood and young adulthood sort of bouncing back and forth between my father's family that was very Lutheran. And my mother's family, that was not. Hmm. It came out of more of a fundamentalist tradition where they did indeed have a discernible, I would call it a dress code, that modesty standards for men and for women, Mm -hmm. where men wore long pants all the time and long sleeve shirts. And that, it, you know, T-shirts, if you saw a T-shirt, it would usually have sleeves sewn on under the T-shirt to be modified. And for women, dresses, not too form-fitting, not too low-cut, sleeves below the elbows, skirts below the knees. And that was that was also normal to me. And in fact, I think I dressed more that way as a teenager than I did, you know, not that way. <laughs> like, yeah. I still, I ran track and cross-country. And of course, I ran, mm. I wore the super short track shorts you know, for meets and stuff and the tank tops and and all that. Like that wasn't an issue. But then when I'd go to school the next day, I'd put on my long skirt and that that just seemed more normal and comfortable to me. And I don't know why it was. I think my sister and I both sort of spent some time 
in our teenage years. Maybe it was a self-preservation thing. Hmm. But yeah, I I dressed in a very modest, old-fashioned way when I was a teenager. And it wasn't until I got to college that I decided I didn't want to be so weird anymore. And I bought myself a couple pairs of jeans and <laughs> and I I cut my hair a little bit because I had really long hair too. And then I started sort of dressing like other people dress and realizing, oh, I look kind of cute. <laughs> and so that sort of began the next 20 years of my life of just sort of like alternating back and forth between mm -hmm. very modest attire and also like, I kind of like that spaghetti strap sundress mm -hmm. um, or those those shorts make my legs look really nice <laughs> and or it's really comfortable to run in just a sports bra. Let's admit. Yeah. So that was and I think just over the last couple of years, I think I've been moving once again away and more towards a more more, I guess, modest style of dress more consistently not all the time because practical considerations but i do have that time in my teenage years to sort of pull back on and that just feels like a very normal thing for me so i i realize that my story is has been formed and shaped by some very different kinds of factors than other people's story and i not what do they say i acknowledge my bias based on my own experiences here. And that, of course, our own experiences do impact. And yet the thing that, getting back sort of into our, into our topic, the thing that we as Christians always look to first is scripture, mm -hmm. not our own opinions, not what we feel like is scripture. <laughs> there are, I think, two texts in the New Testament in particular that seem to apply to this question and have been used and parsed and taken apart and put back together and you know, over and over again. But these are the these are the two that are the clearest on giving us guidance on this question of what should I wear. First Timothy chapter two, starting at verse eight, Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self control, not with braided hair or and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And then the second passage, of course, is in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay. Sarah, your eyes are really big right there. <laughs> I tried not to cut those passages too narrowly mm -hmm. because they are in context. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot going on there beyond just simply women wear this. Yeah. And the texts are long on principles and short on particulars. Neither Peter nor Paul tells women wear this, look like this, 
You know, it's about this is about more than more than that for them. We I, hear we hear words like respectable, modesty, self control, godliness, good works, respectful, pure conduct, the hidden person of the heart, a gentle and quiet spirit, and of course, submitting. <laughs> yes. So they are concerned with the soul first and the externals as a reflection of the reality that is going on inside. And I think anytime we talk about what we wear, that we need to remember that, that we worry first about the spiritual state on the inside, and then we look at what we're wearing that reflects that inner state of being. But it is true that what we wear says something about who we are, and that if we are Christians, it is normal and natural that what we choose to wear would come forth from that faith. Mm -hmm. That everything we do is a reflection of Christ in us. Yeah. So I also did a little little digging into the church fathers. I always like to see what they have to say. They had a <laughs> lot more explicit things to say, and I won't read everything I found. Things about, well, women should really... It's it's great that you're covered up to your to top to toe, but your fabrics are so sheer. I can see it all anyway. You should fix that. <laughs> oh no! Hmm. But they definitely wrote quite a bit about modesty, both for men and women, hmm. both external and internal, both related to what you wear and how you act. As I found out in my childhood, you can wear from from my my exposure to my mother's church of origin you can wear very modest clothing and still be the world's biggest flirt yes totally possible yes <laughs> so modesty is about actions and not just clothing i really liked this quote from clement of alexandria though he said let them be well clothed without by raiment within by modesty oh that modesty is an attitude mm -hmm. not just a clothing choice i like and that yeah isn't that great <laughs> yeah the, the fathers saw, just as we've identified, Aaron, with your comments about being provocative, they saw a real connection between modesty, both of behavior and of clothing, and chastity. They saw those two as being very complementary qualities mm -hmm. yeah, and definitely encouraged both modesty and chastity in a big way among their flocks. St. Cyprian writes, but continence and modesty consist not alone in purity of the flesh, but also in seemliness, as well as in modesty of dress and adornment. Modesty for them was about much more than how much skin was covered. It was also about the luxury or ostentation of the mm -hmm. garments. Mm -hmm. Like if you're wearing a dress that covers you up all the way, but it's absolutely bedecked in seed pearls, they would not call that modest. Sorry, hmm. Queen Elizabeth I, with your giant Elizabethan ruffs and you're just dripping with jewels. You don't pass the early church modesty test because, again, they saw that to be modest meant also to not put too much stock in those sorts of signs of wealth or status. Hmm. It was about humility, about the, about the inner posture, about the humility that, that was going on. Clement again writes, a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. They must, as far as possible, correct their gestures, looks, steps, and speech. 
for they must not do as some who, imitating the acting of comedy and practicing the mincing motions of dancers, conduct themselves in society as if on the stage, with voluptuous movements and gliding steps and affected voices, casting languishing glances round, tricked out with the bait of pleasure. Isn't that a great quote? I just love amazing. Basically, whatever you're wearing, try not to act like you're, what do they call them? Femme fatale. That's the word. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what he's calling out. So, yeah, there's a lot of, and I, I commend you just to do, if you're interested in this, do some Google searches for what Clement and Tertullian and all the rest had to say on this issue. It may raise your eyebrows a bit and give you comfort to know that they are not in the canon of scripture, all of them. So (laughs) (laughs) their words are insightful and appreciated, but not necessarily binding in the same way as, say, Paul and Peter. Hmm. And this is where we're going to have to leave it for today. This was such a great conversation and a very long conversation, as you can tell. So we hope you enjoyed part one and stay tuned for our next episode where we'll share with you part two of our conversation on modesty. And don't forget, you can join us in our Facebook group, The Lutheran Ladies Lounge on Facebook and also on Instagram at Lutheran Ladies Lounge. You can join our e-newsletter by sending us an email, lutheranladies at kfuo.org. And then of course, you can find all of our podcasts at kfuo.org slash Lutheran Ladies Lounge or on your favorite podcasting app or on the KFUO radio app. We'll catch you next time for the rest of our conversation on modesty. Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave a review for us, too. If you love the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast, consider financially supporting our producer, KFUO Radio, so we can keep doing what we do. Find out how at kfuo.org slash give.